Good morning, Northbrook. It's always a joy to see your faces and to be with you. I heard recently that if we want to be credible witnesses to the finished work of Christ, then we need to be willing to tell the whole story of God's people. And just like in any family, generations of them, there are some really proud moments in those family histories, and there are some really dark and embarrassing moments in those family histories. And the story we're going to look at today in 1 Kings 18 is a rather sad and embarrassing story in the history of God's people. But we tell it because God is not afraid to tell it, and we tell it because he has included it in our scriptures. A little bit of backdrop for you. First and second kings are a history of mainly the failure of all the kings. The kings introduced false gods because they entered into political alliances by marrying women from other kingdoms and adopted the worship of their gods. They also participated and encouraged the Israelites to worship those gods as well, oftentimes for political maneuvering reasons. Instead of being faithful to God's covenant, they themselves became corrupt and unjust. They did not reflect the covenant of the God of Israel. So God appointed prophets, and these prophets spoke on God's behalf. They called out idolatry and injustice, but most importantly, they continued to remind Israel of their true calling. And that is their calling always was and always has been to be a light to the nations and idolatry interferes with that. The prophet in the passage we're looking at today is the prophet Elijah. Some people who have studied him term him the wild man. He had many miracles. He caused rain to cease for three and a half years. That happened in chapter 17. The passage we're looking at today, that drought is still there. This was in punishment for the idolatry of the Israelites. But during that time, miraculously, Elijah was kept alive. He was fed by ravens. He multiplied a widow's grain and oil. He raised that same widow's son from the dead. And this morning, we're going to see one of his other miracles as well. Now, before we get into the passage a little bit more detail, at the time of this passage, King Ahab is reigning. King Ahab, unfortunately, is no different than these other kings. However, he too has married a woman for political alliances whose name is Jezebel. And Jezebel is a very evil woman. She vehemently persecuted all the prophets of God. And her husband, King Ahab, actually supported that worship and built all kinds of shrines, altars, and poles to be able to continue this worship. In 1 Kings 18 that we're going to look at today, this is the first time that Elijah and Ahab have met face to face since Elijah pronounced the drought. And another prophet that worked in Ahab's household, Obadiah, had taken it upon himself to quietly and subversively hide God's prophets in caves who were agonizing in prayer for the prophet Elijah and Obadiah. 
I cannot articulate what a nerve-wracking, dangerous connection this would have been at the beginning of the chapter. So turn your attention to the screens, and I'm going to read and have you read with me, not out loud, quietly. 1 Kings 18, 18 through 40. It's a long passage, but I'm going to try to read it as dramatically as I'm able to keep your interest. First thing King Ahab said to Elijah upon meeting him is, you troublemaker of Israel. Talk about blame shifting. And this is how Elijah answered, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, ah, what you say is good. This is good stuff. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with sword and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, in the middle of a drought, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the, private Eli- the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and had them slaughtered there. Whoa. As I was praying through this passage, there was a theme that kept coming to mind, and that theme is the theme of power. And I think there are lessons that we can learn about this generation of God's people that carry forward into our generation and our time today as the Lord's people. The first lesson is one that is implicit in the text, but not that explicit. And I love implicit themes that are in texts. The first is that power comes from God. There's Psalm 62, 11 through 12 says, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. At his best in this story, Elijah knew that all power comes from God. And that's why he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. He had himself right-sized. And I have done all these things at your command. At his best, Elijah knew that all power belong to God. You know, there are people that accuse God of being a power monger. Brothers and sisters, God is not a power monger. God is a power sharing God. From the beginning of all creation, God shares his power with his people to bless and transform his world. Otherwise, why in the world would he have appointed prophets? to turn Israel back to Yahweh. He could have just done it himself, but he appointed prophets. Psalm 115.16 says this, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man, which reflects something we learn in the narrative of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. God created two human beings, put them smack dab in the center of the temple of the earth and said, I have given you all the raw material. I am going to sit back in delight. You people, name, create, procreate, subdue the earth. God delights in power sharing with his people. The backdrop of the Israelites, which they had clearly forgotten as they are worshiping Baal, is something that they were told by God in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. You will be a blessing to all nations. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I am blessing you so you may bless others. One author says that our purpose, our vocation, if we are followers of Jesus, is this. We are living, walking, talking, breathing temples of God. I don't care what your present, what your past, where you are in your faith journey with Jesus, but I will tell you this, this is 
every follower of Jesus' vocation, and it has from the beginning of time. All power comes from God, belongs to God, but God is a power-sharing God. He has chosen us to be the people that transform his world and reflect that his kingdom is among us. Amazing. Historically and presently, God's people have absolutely made a mess of this power that God shares. And there's two ways that we do this. And I am borrowing again from the scholarship and wisdom of N.T. Wright out of his book, Broken Signpost, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. And he says that God's people, all humans, but today we are just talking about God's people, they have messed up God's power in two ways by abdicating it and abusing it. When we abdicate power, we either waste it or we give it away to idols. And we're going to focus on abdicating by giving it away to idols. The God that was being worshipped here instead of Yahweh was Baal. Baal was the God of fertility, rain, and storms. And what Baal required were some pretty nasty things. And by the way, whenever God is drawing us away from idols or we get warning, it is not because we're such naughty, naughty people. It's because you and I are not meant to worship idols. The definition of idolatry is this, the worship of someone or something other than God as though it were God. The issue is this, When we give someone or something power that is not God, that someone or something ultimately ends up mastering, dehumanizing, diminishing, and destroying us. God's anger, Elijah's anger, is an anger fueled by love because God wants us to flourish, not to be destroyed. 1 John 5.21 says this, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Which means that the temptation to worship idols wasn't just a then and there thing. It's a here and now thing. A year ago, there was a survey of a thousand Protestant pastors. A phone survey that they were talked to individually. And they were asked, what do you believe are modern day idols? And here they are in order. Comfort, controller security, money or materialism, approval, success, social influence, political power, sex or romantic love, in that order. I've added four more. Knowledge, productivity, efficiency, and the Packers. With all compassion, and I am going to tell you this, by the way, if you think that the person standing here preaching does not succumb to idol worship, you have put me on a pedestal. When I preach, I want you to know I am with you as a follower of Jesus and a fellow struggler in obedience and transformation. 
What I have learned in myself that when I give in to any one of those idols, there are two things behind it. One is fear, the fear of scarcity. There's not enough. There's not going to be enough. I'm not enough. And then with it, impatience. If there's not enough and God doesn't act the way I think God needs to act, I will take matters into my own hands. The song that we sang at the end is, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Idol worship, when we abdicate it, almost always is driven by fear. But then there's this abuse of power. When I was studying this passage, one thing that was very difficult about this story is that it is very likely that Elijah, even after that beautiful prayer, that I am just your servant, you are the God of power. Elijah most likely abused his power. God did not command him to slaughter 450 of Baal's prophets. Most likely Elijah took matters into his own hand. How could that be and what do we have to learn about that? Well, there's a couple of hints here. One is his phrase. He says it in 18 and he says it again in 19. I am the only one of God's prophets left. Really? Obadiah is in Ahab's household secretly hiding the rest of God's prophets? There's going to be another prophet that God provides after Elijah. That's Elisha. The God of all power is never without resources. If it wasn't Elijah, God would provide someone else. Elijah was arrogant. He had himself out of size. I am the only one left. With arrogance, there also comes a lot of anger and contempt. He's out of size. There's another hint in this chapter, and that's when he begins to taunt the prophets of Baal. And I'm not saying that his content wasn't right. Like, Baal isn't acting. He's having you slash yourselves until you cut through tissue and bleed. That's nuts. What kind of God is that? But the taunting is an action of contempt. I will tell you that the times I have abused power given to me, little or big, it is because I am not in proper size. I'm filled with arrogance I am burned out as a result of that. And then I am filled with contempt, looking down on other people who should be more like me. And I'm going to share a very embarrassing story that I can share without getting me fired (laughs) to illustrate this. About 15 years ago, I was in a spiritually and psychologically very, very unhealthy place. It was, I was at the height of a ministry position at another church. I was being given a lot of responsibility and it really fed my ego. And I had a little undercurrent that started that told me, you are God's gift to this church. And nobody can really do your job any better than you. I also had four kids, nine and under at home, and a husband, and I was working full-time plus. 
I was absolutely burned out believing I could do it all, I could have it all, and I got a lot of kudos for it. I was full of arrogance and I was blind to it. And I was also very, very tired, weary, and resentful. One night I had a late ministry meeting and my life was so chaotic that when I left I realized my gas tank was on empty. And it probably had been empty for a long time. I also had to go to the bathroom, but I'm like, I don't have time for that. I got to get home. And I calculated that. So 11 trip back to Wal- minute trip back to Wauwatosa. I get on the expressway only to dead standstill traffic, totally forgetting that I-94 East was under construction. But I thought, well, you know what? I can do this. I can just make a U-turn, an illegal U-turn, go back to Blue Marone to take it home. You know, I I can do something illegal. There was a police car at every single U-turn. I could feel myself getting out of control. Forty minutes later, one mile, I reached the construction crew. And I'm in the left lane, only lane open. They are probably within three feet of my window. You know what they were doing? eating dinner. I blew a gasket. I rolled down my window, and I am not going to repeat what I said. But I I held up traffic, and I gave them the what for. And I could see them warning the next crew, which was about 50 feet down, probably like Jezebel's on her way. Be careful. I get to this next crew, and I mean, that, that verbalization that I did even ramped up even more. So this time, I actually stuck my half of my body out the window. And I went even further with my contempt and my barrage. These people have no control over when they're going to take breaks. But the great Jenny Heckman, who was so arrogant to think that these people could hold me up when I had important things I was coming from and getting to... I lost control. Arrogance, burnout, and contempt. I got about five minutes down the road, and I came to my senses. And let me tell you something, the Holy Spirit was right there with conviction. What happened, Jenny? You have not reflected my love, my patience, my care for people. You have abused the fruits of the Spirit within you. You have wasted them and you have harmed other people as a result. And all I could think of is probably arrogant too. What happens if I run into these people at church? I'm going to have to save face somehow. But I want to tell you something, that God used that as a wake-up call. And I really had to take a hard look at my life And there were just some things that needed, needed, needed to be changed and adjusted. And I am happy to tell you, because of great people in my life that have cared for me and mentored me, and also the empowering of the Holy Spirit, I am not that woman I was 15 years ago. We really mess with God's power. Elijah did, all the kings did, God's people historically. But listen, whenever God asks us to descend into the bad parts of the story of the people of God or our story, 
there is always an ascent to hope and encouragement. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. There is hope that we can actually steward God's power well. But it's through some different mechanisms than perhaps God's people in 1 Kings 18 had available to them. Elijah shows up a number of places in the New Testament, but there's two places in particular that really caught my attention that give us some hope about where we draw our power from in a new way and how we steward it. The first place he shows up is, well, one of the places is the transfiguration. That's where transfiguration is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a new portal here, a new door by which we enter to be able to have something change in us that allows us to steward God's power well and then exercise our human vocation the way we're meant to. At the transfiguration, there are three prophets. There's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. Moses, of course, represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. Neither the law or the prophets could accomplish what Jesus Christ fulfilled. This prophet did something different. But the theme in this transfiguration is actually Exodus. Moses led his people to the promised land. Elijah tried to lead his people out of idolatry. But what did Jesus do? Jesus led people from old creation to new creation. Everything that was promised in Ezekiel and in the Old Testament, I will put new hearts in you, a new spirit in you. Jesus was the portal of that exodus. We now have new hearts, new spirits, the mind of Christ, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, so that we can steward God's power well and exercise this human vocation. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For the Spirit of God, the Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This Spirit of God, the mind of Christ that we now have dwelling in us, dwelling in us as a people, is a combination of three things. Oh yes, it's power, but it's also combined with love and self-discipline. That's the new portal we have because of what Jesus accomplished. When sin is crouching at my door, around when I'm advocating my power or I'm tempted to abuse it, that verse has been such a helpful prayer. Lord Jesus, through the power of your spirit, would you please help me to steward this power through love, self-discipline, humility, and appropriate trepidation so I don't do harm and I do not do harm to your reputation. God is so faithful to answer that kind of prayer because we have a new portal. But probably one of the most powerful New Testament passages we see Elijah show up again is in James five sixteen through 20. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. When Elijah was at his best, and honestly, when we are too, we know that our true source of power comes through prayer. When we come to the throne of grace and mercy, to a God who is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, and will give us what we need tailor-made to us at the proper time. This passage is talking about the fact that we too, in some ways, have a prophetic ministry, but it's to one another. That part of being God's people and loving each other well is to warn to help each other turn back, to say, oh, I feel like you might be giving too much power to this thing or that thing. But brothers and sisters, if we don't do this immersed in prayer first, oh, we're going to do damage. But there's a new way because we have a new heart and a new spirit because of Jesus. And now we have a throne that we come to, not of judgment, but of grace and mercy to be seeped in prayer before we actually take any action God would ask us to take. Whatever picture you have in your mind about what an effective prayer looks like, I want you to move it out of the way right now because there are two pictures that come from two kids. Yes, I have permission to have these on the screen that came out of Kids Venture, and here they are. This is what prayer of a righteous, effective person looks like. It is humble, it is dependent, it is childlike, it is joyous. Because none of us is smart enough or powerful enough or wise enough. We are meant to live in this beautiful, beautiful, safe dependency on a father who knows us, loves us, knows what we need, and is delighted to dispense his power and his wisdom on an as-needed basis. So the lessons here are this. We have a God who is the source of all power, but this God, his purpose is to share his power with us so that we may bless and transform the world. But the only way that we can do that well in the Jesus way is by tapping into the source of all power and all wisdom and all knowledge in childlike humble dependence upon him. Oh Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to listen, and courage to act and speak where you ask us to do that. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.